The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. A very warm welcome to this Thursday edition of Squawbox with Karen Cho, Jeff Cutmore and myself, Steve Sedgwick. These are your headlines. Federal Reserve Chair Jerome Powell holds a dovish line as the central bank sees interest rates staying near zero until at least 2023, despite officials sharply boosting their outlook for growth and inflation this year. We could also see upward pressure on prices if spending rebounds quickly. However, these one-time increases in prices are likely to have only transient effects on inflation. The Dow Jones Industrial Average topping 33,000 for the first time and yields easing on the back of the Fed's announcement with U.S. futures pointing to a muted open on Wall Street today. Dutch Prime Minister Mark Rutte is set to secure a fourth term in office to become the country's longest serving leader with his VVD party projected to win 35 of the 150 seats. And the EU goes on the attack, warning that it will hold back vaccine exports to nations it says are failing to deliver jabs to the bloc. We need to ensure that there is reciprocity and proportionality. We will have to reflect on how to make exports to vaccine-producing countries dependent on their level of openness. So, were you surprised by what they said? Were you shocked by the market action? Were you shocked by the summary of economic projections? You weren't, were you? But you still managed to send the market to a new record high. Extraordinary, isn't it? Let's go on. Uh, The Fed sees interest rates, shockingly, uh, near zero until at least 2023, despite the central bank ramping up its growth forecasts. Officials now expect economic growth in the United States to rebound to 6.5% this year, up from 4.2% in December, before settling into a longer-term range of 2.3%. It is the first set of growth predictions from the FOMC since President Biden's $1.9 trillion stimulus package was passed by lawmakers. Now, Fed officials also forecast... This is the bit you really care about, isn't it? Fed officials also forecast inflation to go past the 2% target this year. But the chair, Jerome Powell, warned it would only be temporary. We could also see upward pressure on prices if spending rebounds quickly as the economy continues to reopen, particularly if supply bottlenecks limit how quickly production can respond in the near term. However, these one-time increases in prices are likely to have only transient effects on inflation. There you go. Transient effects on inflation. You didn't expect. Oh, you did expect that. OK. Uh, Powell also elaborated on the Fed's unemployment forecast with members expecting the jobless rate to fall this year. The economy as a whole, employment is 9.5 million below its pre-pandemic level. The unemployment rate remains elevated at 6.2 percent in February. This figure understates the shortfall in employment, particularly as participation in the labor market remains notably below pre-pandemic levels. 
Let's take a close-up look at those markets. As Steve just mentioned, record levels for the Dow and S&P. These markets continue to see that rotation story around the inflation outlook. Some of the big moving stocks, Boeing, for instance, that was in play for the Dow. And in terms of the technology names that move the likes of the S&P and the Nasdaq, some of the high flyers back in the game, for instance, the likes of Tesla, slightly patchier action to report in the, the FANG stocks on the back of the Fed yesterday. But if we can switch over the boards, you can see how it played out and across that sector. And this has been where investors have been somewhat cautious around just how violent the markets could still be. We saw a flush out of some positions, very long positions in the technology sector with this rotation concerns that higher interest rates would be a negative backdrop now for some of these big tech names that have moved aggressively on valuation. But you could see Apple was one of the big drags in the markets yesterday. It was off about six tenths of a percent and throughout most of the day, Alphabet trading just a fraction weaker. But one standout was Amazon. That stock up 1.4% in session. And I mentioned the high flyers, the likes of the Teslas in this world, 3.6% higher. So uh, that was a big catalyst for the ARK Innovation Fund. You saw that rally uh, more than 1%, for instance, in the day. Yeah, I mean, it's very easy to see what the Fed's trying to do here. The Fed is trying to calm nerves where it can. There are so many imponderables out there that it it cannot control, such as the rollout of vaccines, the success of vaccines, uh, and indeed how bad COVID-19 is going to affect the global economy continuing this year and perhaps into the future and the cost of that. But what he can control at the moment uh, is market expectations on interest rates and inflation to a certain degree, caterers baribus. But and what is very interesting is the market is becalmed at the moment. Not only are we seeing record highs. I mean, it was only a couple of days ago. I'm pretty sure I was on our sister channel, NBC, talking about 32,000 record level. Now we're 33,000 record level. They're changing through those hats uh, at such a regular basis aren't they? But look at this. As you know, I'm a former options trader and I'm always very interested in what the near month at the money most active traded contract is. You don't know what that is? It's the VIX, okay? Just so you know. All right, yeah, see, director just learned something. So the VIX, 19.23. But this year down 15%. Month to date, it's down over 30% now as well. So what it means is, it means nobody's taking it. Well, no, I say nobody. Of course, somebody is. There are somebody opening uh, contracts out there. The open interest would be zero otherwise. But very few people are initiating uh, purchases of protection in the options market for their portfolios, despite the fact that, of course, they continue to rally. What about the Treasury markets? Well, we hit 168 on the 10-year, and it's come back down a tad to 163. But now, look, it's not far away. So the test from those, and they're not bomb vigilantes, are they? It doesn't feel like, we've been through periods where they've been bomb vigilantes aggressively, uh, basically selling down their Treasury holdings or doing some other option or derivative trade to try and test uh, the will of the central bankers to hold a certain line. But at the moment, 166.75, very near, very near to the recent highs as well. So it'd be fascinating to see what happens uh, across the curve at two-year trading point one, three, three. Dollar crosses. The dollar's lost a little bit of ground, as you'd expect, in the previous session as well. Uh, but I noticed the euro can't catch a break at the moment. One nineteen sixty-six. Cable. Again, these markets looked becalmed at the moment. There was a real surge up above 140 on the pound at one stage. Now we're back down to 139.54. Dollar yen, 108.86. Uh, and the dollar Swissy. So actually, looking at these crosses today as opposed to yesterday, very interesting to see the dollar back on the front foot. Mr. Cutmore, how are you this morning, sir? Yeah, very good. Thank you. And and very interesting. I mean, as you point out, the dollar has retaken some of those initial losses 
after the Powell announcement. So we've also seen the same thing happen on the yield curve, effectively, as you point out, the 10-year back in one spot, six, six, seven territory as well. So even as Powell is telling you this is not time to leave the party, the taxes haven't arrived yet, the bond markets still continue to be a little concerned either about the prospect of a very strong recovery or indeed the need for the Federal Reserve to continue to um, acquire more cash. Let's just focus on the futures for a moment. The uh, outlook on the futures is positive as well at this stage, as you would imagine. The message from the markets are that uh, Powell has soothed concerns around inflation, suggested he'll focus on unemployment and growth rather than the inflation risks here and inevitably uh, risk assets are getting that bump. Um, Let's talk a little bit about uh, what some of the high profile investors are actually saying about this. Uh, Mark Mobius uh, has been on the channel in an interview with CNBC. uh, Mobius Capital Partners founder uh, warned central banks could be making a major mistake here in their inflation calculations. I don't think the inflationary fears are valid. Now, I'm not saying that prices are not going up. Yes, prices are going up. That's that's because of currency devaluation, because you have so much currency in circulation, it devalues. That's no problem. But uh, what I point out in the book is that the measures of inflation are faulty. They're not very well done. Uh, The basket changes from one period to the other. So it's a very bad measure. And unfortunately, central banks rely on this uh, very uh, bad measure to make policy decisions that affect millions and millions of people, which I think is a big mistake. Well, Mark Mobius there speaking as part of a special CNBC Pro talk session with Martin Sung. You can catch more online, of course. That would be uh, CNBC Pro. Uh, See why China's not the only emerging market that he likes right now and why, of course, he's praying that Bitcoin doesn't crash and burn, Steve. I saw that. I was looking at CNBC Pro yesterday, Jeffrey. But you're not the only one who can say CNBC Pro, you know. Right, let's move on. <laughs> Patrick Krizan is Senior Economist, Macroeconomics and Capital Markets at Allianz. Uh, Patrick, very, very nice you could join us so early. I do appreciate it. Um, look, did you learn anything yesterday? I mean, I, I, I thought the, uh, the the economic projections would be would be upped a little bit. I thought they would be very calm. and inf- I don't really know if I learned too much. I've got to be honest. But did you? That's more important. Good morning and thank you. Thank you for having me. Yeah, on the first glance, this was one of these uh, autopilot meetings. Um, uh, monetary co- policy cornerstones were mainly uh, untouched. But I think the interesting part was uh, happening in the press conference or more in the, in the communication around the, the decision and how that was framed. Um, because in the, in the front up of this, uh, of this meeting, I think expectation had heated up quite significantly. We had this market-implied inflation expectations rising, driving up long-term yields, option positioning in the, in the treasury markets, and uh, also the money markets pricing in rate hikes. So um, in, in that extent, I thought that yesterday's meeting was uh, a clear commitment of the Fed to stick with this uh, average inflation target uh, policy, at least for the time being. So in that case, 
Uh, that was uh, the, the message I took from yesterday's meeting. I'm delighted we've got a senior economist with us because I, I must be honest, I'm anything but a senior economist. Uh, I, I stopped my education way below your kind of level, but I have been in markets quite a while. And very often, historically, I've seen declining unemployment, growing growth with an increased inflation. Why aren't we seeing anything meaningful happening on inflation these days? Are we in historic times where inflation has been defeated? Um, uh, <laughs> that's uh, that's the one dollar, one million dollar question on on inflation and 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 the labor market. It's true that at, at the first view, it's a bit puzzling to see uh, in uh, unemployment being so low and inflation not uh, overshooting significantly. But what yesterday's meetings also brought about is that uh, the conception of um, labor market is much broader, at least what the Fed understands by it. And also see that the Phillips curve is uh, so flat, so the relationship between inflation and labor market, that uh, you can uh, run the economy uh, hot for some time without seeing a um, um, significant increase in inflation. And I think uh, that's, that's the bet uh, in, in the game currently. Uh, and um, I think the, 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 the markets have tried to test that a bit. Uh, but for the time being, I think we have reached a kind of an equilibrium, at least for the short term. Patrick, I wanted to ask you a little bit more about those animal spirits because it's only been a couple of years we've been talking about running inflation a little bit hot. And then we had AIT, uh, the change in uh, inflation targeting. Now we're seeing this play out in practice as uh, Powell yesterday is trying to sell this to the markets, letting that inflation number tick up at least short term. What do you think we look like when we start to well and truly be in a recovery phase and we've got those bigger inflation numbers to digest? Do you think the markets will hold the line? I think the interesting part for the Fed will be the next meeting uh, because we will see this uh, in inflation picking up strongly. We have these year-on-year base effects that are kicking in. So we could see temporarily at least inflation rising over 3%. And then the Fed has at least uh, to, to, uh, to make clear what the understands by moderate overshoot of inflation is acceptable. Uh, currently, they haven't given any uh, numerical target for that. But I think in the June meeting, they uh, will have to come out with something. And, and then uh, we will see how markets will react to that. Patrick, I want to talk about uh, the divergence in growth. And it was something that JPAR touched on yesterday and what's playing out in Europe and elsewhere. And, you know, there's one of the concerns we've raised as well, whether you've got some of the pressures on markets and negative pressures from higher inflation, but not the stronger growth rates here in Europe. And, you know, the ECB is targeting at 3.6, uh, I think the Bank of Japan, I should say, slightly more for the ECB at 4%, but nowhere near the 6 plus percent that the Fed's getting to. What happens under this scenario? Do you see imported inflation being an issue while those growth rates are also slightly smaller than what the U.S. is expecting? So what I see is that uh, we have, we have the, the central banks have gone into this crisis altogether with the same kind of policies. But we see now that the, they will exit these strategies uh, in a different pace. And uh, indeed, this is, uh, uh, as, as the U.S. is probably the country of the big monetary space who exited first and will and is doing better than the others, that could actually put pressure on, uh, on uh, regions that are doing less good than, uh, for example, Europe, uh, uh, especially as uh, the long-term yields in, in, in the U.S. are also giving a pace, a global pace for yields in, in the world. We have seen also that with the rise in U.S. yields, we had an increase 
in European uh, yields, so also here a bit of um, a tightening of financial conditions at a moment where Europe is in a, in a more fragile situation. I think um, this makes the job for the ECB not easier, but uh, in a way the, the, the comments yesterday from Chairman Powell also show that the Fed is very well aware of its international responsibility uh, in, 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 this, in this recovery. So um, it makes the thing for, uh, the, for the ECB not easier, but I don't expect it to be totally disruptive no, either. Patrick, then, so what's the message for those who might want to dabble in the bond market watching these yield moves? Um, is there a risk here of uh, further intervention from Powell, say, operation twist and yield curve management? Yeah, what, um, well, I think it's, we have to look at what is actually priced in the yield curve. And there's a lot, a lot of talk about market uh, expectations of inflation and so on. But we did the analysis and we saw that actually what was priced in was more the uncertainty or the risk element of, of, of the, in the yields. And these risks are related to temporary overshoot inflation and also a rebalancing of the supply and demand in long-term U.S. treasuries. So in that case, this repricing of this, especially of the supply and demand of, of, of U.S. treasuries, which is in, it can, it is embodied in the term premium, what we call it, um, is something that was expected in a way. So this repricing of the long-term yields is something that uh, is in line with these changes of, of funding strategy also in the, in the U.S. Um, if you want to to see what's happening on the on the U.S. bond market, I think don't focus too much at the long end of the curve. The music currently is on the short end. Um, I don't know if uh, you are aware, but uh, many of the very short uh, rates in the U.S. money market rates are trading very close to zero. We have the SOFR or, or, or the overnight repo rate just trading above zero. So we have this situation where we have um, the U.S. yield curve being stretched on the long end and on the extremities of the very short end. And I think the Fed made very clear yesterday that it's a, a total priority to keep the short-term funding market functioning. And if there is, for example, one of these rates going into negative territory, um, pulling or pulling down the, the effective Fed funds rates, then you would expect interventions on the Fed, but on the short end of the curve. So maybe... Uh, that's a message I want to convey. The short end of the curve uh, of the U.S. is currently where the music is playing. One of the challenges, it seems to me, is is just because there's so much money around, uh, bond desks are struggling to get as much um, uh, short end of the curve as they actually want, and some are being pushed into the muni market and other places. Um, what do you do if you're sat there at the moment and you are trying to get a reasonable return, but obviously you want to hang close to the exits uh, at the shorter end of the curve? I think it's a very uh, challenging uh, moment for this uh, for the short end of the curve because uh, um, we have uh, really a scarcity of collateral. The, the U.S. Uh, Treasury is winding down its cash balance at the Fed, so this is increasing bank reserves. And this is putting pressure on the on the money market rates. But at the same time, we have less issuance of, of short term collateral. Um, so for these markets, um, uh, it's it's a it's a tough uh, it's it's a tough environment. So you, you and and I think there is there is a risk of instability here due to the fact that uh, 
the US money market rate, uh, money market funds as such an important player. Um, and uh, again, uh, the disruption or the, the, the disruptive moments or movements may not occur on the, on the long end of the curve, but much more on the short end. We're going to leave it there, but nice of you to join us uh, early in uh, Munich. Thank you very much indeed for your time today, sir. And we'll speak to you again soon, hopefully. Patrick Kleesan, who yeah. is Senior Economist, Macroeconomics and Capital Markets over at Allianz. Well, the adulation. <laughs> no, no, not for this show, but for Mr. Powell. Uh, for more on the Fed's latest decision and find out why Jerome Powell, here's the adulation, was hailed as a maestro uh, following his press conference. Uh, check out cnbc.com. I hope you don't, they don't mean the kind of maestro that we drove in the 70s, Jeff. Uh, I should think most of those are on a scrap heap somewhere or have been turned into fridges or something else. Uh, Well, the central bank roadshow continues, of course. The Bank of England is expected to keep interest rates and bond buying unchanged when it releases its latest decision today. The meeting comes against the backdrop of improving data, a swift vaccine rollout and increased support for Chancellor Rishi Sunak's recent budget. Uh, The minutes will be in focus for commentary on the uptick in gilt yields amid fears of accelerating inflation globally. Governor Andrew Bailey has said rising interest rates are just a reflection of growing economic optimism. Jamana will be on decision time at 12.55 CET. So make a point of watching that update. Yeah, I never fail to be amazed by the fact that rising rates can mean a huge optimism or huge pessimism. And I always love that juxtapose. Oh, if your rates are going up and no one wants your bonds, is they're really worried about the credit worthiness or they think things are going so well that they, should, they don't want to own bonds, they want to own other assets. I thought it was just always perceived as a negative from my experience of seeing rates go up and very rapidly in a short space of time. I didn't yeah. hear a lot of pauses uh, at the time. you've cut your teeth in the 20th century, isn't it? <laughs> After dot-com bubbles and GFCs and what have you. Uh, right, coming up on this show, four in a row... Dutch Prime Minister Mark Rutte is on pace to secure a fourth term in office. We will discuss next. And just a reminder for a reaction from the Fed's pledge to maintain rates near zero, you can check out the Squawk Box podcast. Ambition to me is about doing better. I think ambition creates a pathway. The best advice I can give to someone starting off a career is don't have a career, have lots of careers, try loads of different things. Talk to people and put your ambition out there. I don't feel that I've hit peak ambition because it's a learning journey. CNBC is where ambition meets opportunity. What does living ambitiously mean to you? Hear it from our CNBC anchors, reporters and global business leaders on CNBC.com. So the Dutch Prime Minister Mark Rutte did actually clinch uh, victory in the end in uh, the in the polls in the Netherlands. Exit polls have given the centre-right VVD party 35 of the 150 parliamentary seats. Uh, Rutte's key ally, the Liberal D66 party, came in second. Well, that's quite interesting because the far-right Freedom Party dropped down to third, but is forecast to have lost uh, three seats. Now, Rutte told reporters the result marked a vote of confidence in his party and leadership, despite him having dissolved the previous government over a scandal involving child benefits. 
I just uh, note that the result of this election is that uh, the voters in the Netherlands uh, have given the, the, my party, the, the Dutch Liberal Party, an overwhelming uh, yeah, vote of confidence. And it is humbling. Uh, it is also uh, forcing us to uh, do everything we can to make a success out of it. So I think in itself, it's not going to rock any boats for our viewers today uh, regarding bonds in Europe or, or political machinations. But I think what it does show is actually there are a certain amount of voters out there who have been challenged by populism over the years. And goodness knows there isn't anyone who, who, who touched, uh, tick, tick that box perhaps more than Get Wilders and his Freedom Party as well, uh, where they seem to have been on the wane. And actually it was a vote for continuity. So is that a template for what could happen in bigger elections with the, the Chancellor over in Germany, uh, Frau Merkel, of course, uh, seeding later this year, and indeed the French presidential elections in 2022, which will uh, matter enormously? And I don't think there is, because I think this is very much a vote for continuity amid the crisis from the Dutch people at the moment as well. And the point being, of course, you have enormous uh, splits in Dutch politics, a huge number of parties as well. So forming a government could be interesting as ever uh, in the Netherlands, although though we don't think it'll take uh, another 208 days like it did in 2017. But I think the ramifications, you can't draw that actually broader European populations, whether it's in Germany or indeed France, want continuity from their candidates, given, let's face it, the appalling uh, voting for the CDU in those two big regional elections that we talked about earlier in the week. And as well, and in France, uh, Monsieur Macron seems incredibly challenged at the moment and I've literally just in the last 10 minutes in all of our inboxes there's a piece that's come from uh, one contributor over at Berenberg says France the return of Marine Le Pen. We like to pick over the, the results to see what it means for the future and I think one thing jumped out the protest vote and this particular election was around uh, COVID. So the COVID sceptics went towards one of the populace. So if we look for protest votes, not around typical issues, and migration's been a big issue, of course, in Europe in recent years, and uh, parties have been uh, strong on anti-immigration or taking a certain line have picked up that protest vote. Uh, and uh, I think where some of that has just dissipated, there are bigger issues at play at this particular moment, and COVID clearly one of them. So perhaps there's some messaging in that for some of the populace in this election. I think what also jumps out is that why isn't Ruta losing his appeal at this point? Uh, typically after a couple of elections, populations are over that particular leader, they're over that particular party. You get enormous amount of fatigue that sets, settles in. Four terms in office is an extraordinary feat. And you start to have, ask the question, what is different for him? And I think perhaps it's a level of authenticity. His leadership style is something that people believe, even if they don't like the person, they do believe that he means what he says. And perhaps there is also messaging and that for Macron and for others coming through the system, going back to the polls, Jeff. I think the challenge for the Dutch at this point is to just figure out what their new role is within the EU. So uh, they've always been a very close trading partner for the UK. And culturally, you could argue that there is a close attachment uh, between the uh, the Brits and, and the Dutch. The question is, you know, Nexit, it, it does seem, has been uh, firmly uh, set to one side here. You can't see the Netherlands really going down the same path as the Brits, but they have to find their new role, I think, in the block now that the UK has left, because ultimately uh, they will end up uh, being dictated to by policies um, that are coming out of the French-German access. And um, I, I, I suspect that given that Mark Rutter has shown himself willing at times to oppose 
fiscal looseness and to step in and say, no, we think that uh, we ought to be more measured in the degree of uh, support and obligations financially that northern European countries are prepared to take on, that will have struck a chord with a lot of Dutch citizens, I think, who at times do appear frustrated with what they see as uh, fiscal laxness in other countries in the bloc. And obviously, we know the consequences of that. When you are in a single currency union, there are other parts of the bloc that may then feel obliged to commit more than they receive. And that was always a um, a sore, I think, with the UK, that it always felt that when it came to paying into the bloc, uh, it contributed more than it ever got back. And the Netherlands finds itself in the same place. As Steve points out, Mark Rutte is the continuity candidate in a crisis, but he's also demonstrated that at times he is willing to go back to Brussels and say, no, we think you've taken enough at this point, or let's be a little bit more measured on the further stimulus that we're prepared to give. So I think it is an interesting election outcome at a very challenging time for all European countries. Uh, and we will continue to watch because uh, Mark Rutter, as you point out, Karen, is, is nothing if not colourful at times and quite genuine in political terms. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market-moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Show weekdays on CNBC.